This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. When you hear words like defund the police, does it sound as crazy to you as it does to me or does it make any sense? It does sound crazy. Former Maryland Attorney General Douglas Gansler has another idea. I think every police department in America should have an independent assessment as to how is that department handling issues of diversity, cultural sensitivity, and ways in which they respond. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Colin Kaepernick, he launched a lightning strike four years ago when he knelt during the national anthem during a 49ers game. In the wake of George Floyd's death, people are just now figuring out what he was trying to do. And I don't think he's the type of guy sitting back saying, I told you so, or he he wants to take credit for people being in the street right now. I don't think he's about that. Kaepernick's not talking, but Steve Weich from the NFL Network, who broke the story, is. Knowing his character and where his heart is and some things he has said to me, you know, well before now, I think he's more about let's get this situation fixed. So where does that stand? That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. With Chris Kaur and J.J. Green. I'm Chris Kaur, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm African-American. And this is Colors. How are you, partner? You're way down there in St. Petersburg, and what what are you, about a thousand miles away from, from, yeah. from Washington? Yeah. How are you? Uh, well, it's, you know, it's hot and humid and everybody's inside and, you know, <laughs> staying away from each other because of the, the virus. I mean, you know, it's like everything else. Yeah. The, the, having this story with George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter come at the same time as the virus is just uh, an extraordinary set of circumstances that's just consumed the country, the two things together. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad we're doing this because... You know, it's the middle of July here, and pretty soon it's going to get towards August. And many people may remember in August of 2016, something took place that just really rocked the NFL and the country as a whole. And this was that moment when Colin Kaepernick, who was the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, took a knee during the national anthem. You remember that, right? Everybody remembers that. And uh, uh, I don't know, in some ways, I know that that um, he says, well, don't just, I didn't start it. It was started back in the Olympics with, uh, with the Tommy Smith, I think. That's right, 1968, uh, I think. Yeah, right. and, and, but nonetheless, uh, it was the beginning of a debate we're still having. Yeah, so I've often wondered, and you and I have chatted about this too, wonder what Colin Kaepernick is thinking right now. And, and, and he just is not talking, you know, and he's, you know, been asked many times, well, will you say something? What do you think? He's just not talking right now. And I understand why. So the next best thing 
uh, from my perspective, was to speak to somebody who knew him well and who understands what he's thinking. And the guy, the person, was Steve Weish, who was the guy who actually broke the story about Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling during the 49ers game. So I got in touch with him, thanks to our good friend Thomas Warren over at the NFL.com, and he did an interview with us. And this is what he had to say about all that. I can't wait to hear it. We're fortunate to have Steve Weish from NFL Media with us. He's a reporter for NFL Network, an analyst and studio host and senior writer for NFL.com. Steve, a year after you broke the Colin Kaepernick story regarding him not standing for the national anthem, we learned that you had a conversation with him before he decided to do that. And you said on August 27, 2017, which was a year after again, you said, did I think at the time it was going to lead to him not standing for the national anthem? No, absolutely, I did not. And in hindsight, it appears as though he had been thinking for a while about that act, which triggered a movement to deal with racial inequality well before the 49ers, the NFL, and the rest of the country began to deal seriously with it. So give us the backstory on that conversation and that quote. Right. So that quote stemmed from uh, some conversations and some observations that I had during the summer before he actually decided not to stand during that preseason game against the Packers. So living in California, I would go visit teams during the off season, and I was going to visit the 49ers. Chip Kelly was their coach, um, and he was the guy who was supposedly going to get Kaepernick's career back on track because his coaching style matched Kaepernick's playing skills. Well, Cap couldn't go through um, a lot of the summer drills. He was just coming off of, I believe, a shoulder surgery, a hand surgery, and knee surgery, so he wasn't medically cleared. But I saw him on the field, and he looked really thin. And I said to somebody, like, wow, is is Cap, you know, is he, is he one of those guys that has to lift to retain weight because he looks so thin? And they said, no, Cap has gone to a vegan diet. You know, he's really gotten into his his spirituality. He's gotten into Black Lives Matter. You know, he's, he's, he's taking some courses on this. Like, he's really kind of found his voice with some things. And, and then, you know, I would look at Cap's Instagram, his, tweet, his Twitter account, and he was very big, you know, very outspoken on the Black Lives Matter and some of the things that we were seeing, Alton Sterling getting shot on film. This is after... Michael Brown and Ferguson, and just so many things we saw on video. So at the time, I was like, okay, you know, Cap's turning 27 now. He sees what's happening in the world around him. Good for him. But then when he decided not to stand for the national anthem, months later, or, you know, six weeks later, two months later, I was like, wow, maybe one is tied to the other. And that's what led me to believe that, that, you know, maybe this is bigger than him um, just not, you know, not standing for the national anthem, tying his shoe or whatever. Maybe there's something there, and that's what prompted me um, to ask him the question why he didn't stand. Tell us his answer, and, and were you surprised with, with what he told you? Well, no, he, he was very outspoken, um, very free with his answer. So what, what happened first off is nobody asked him about this in his postgame press conference. So I had arranged with the Niners saying, if nobody asked him about it, I need to speak to Cap one-on-one. And they knew that Cap and I had a relationship in terms of 
I first met Cap at the Senior Bowl, and in all of his years, even backing up Alex Smith, um, I would come up with, and we would always speak. You know, professionally, I would see him at some events. Privately, we would speak. Um, and so I think when he realized it was me, he's like, okay, great. I, someone I feel comfortable with. And when I asked him, hey, what, what's going on? And he said, look, you know, we have all of this police brutality against unarmed black men. Uh, we've got dead bodies laying in the street and police officers getting paid leave. I cannot in good conscience um, honor a flag that supports this type of behavior and this type of continued discrimination against black and brown people. And there was, there's a lot more things said, but, um, you know, he, he basically was, was explaining four years ago what's going on in such plain view today, plain view today. That is the most remarkable part about this whole thing to me is that this man, it's almost as if he had a, a looking glass into the future because everything that he was essentially dealing with in his own mind and charting his course towards is what we're just now arriving at. At least the public is arriving at the will to go out and do what he did, basically sacrificing his career several years ago to do in terms of uh, systemic racism. So have you had a chance to engage with him now? What's happening with him now? Well, I have not spoken to Cap uh, recently. Last time I saw Cap, uh, there was, you know, it's when he had the tryout in Atlanta last year um, for a potential comeback. Um, and, and that was all kinds of uh, bizarre. But, um, you know, look, Cap's been very quiet. You have not seen him much on social media. You have not heard him say anything. He's watching this play out. Very, very smart guy. Incredibly smart guy. But a quiet guy. And I don't think he's the type of guy sitting back saying, I told you so. Or he, or he wants to take credit for people being on the street right now. I don't think he's about that. I think he is about, again, and knowing his character and where his heart is and some things he has said to me, you know, well before now, I think he's more about let's get this situation fixed. Let's put the bad cops in jail. Let's stop the, the police brutality. Let's change policing. So some cop who's, who's having a bad day, who's hopped up or who basically views black and brown people as criminals before human beings, let's fix that. And, and, and I think, Again, I don't think he's someone who's out here puffing out his chest because at the same time, unarmed black men are dying. George Floyd is dying. Breonna Taylor is dying. I don't think there's any joy or any victory lap in the fact that now there's an outcry to fix this stuff. I think he is more about let's fix this and let's stop those deaths. And then is when we can say that there's been enough action to force needed change. Against the backdrop of learning what you learned from him several years ago, what he was prepared to do to move the needle on this cause, and uh, looking at where we are today, what are your thoughts about what you've seen? What are your thoughts about the massive protests, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, that have seen people emulating him taking a knee, people emulating him taking a very outspoken stance without really saying much as you say he's a very quiet guy what have you seen and what do you see now 
when you compare then and now? Well, I don't want to say he's a trendsetter because I think that would be disrespectful to people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and so many other people who have been speaking out for years. At the same time, um, you know, when, when Colin was first kept from working in the NFL and people were, sponsors were threatening teams with, you know, withdrawing if their players kneeled, he's going to end up on the right side of history, right? His conviction and his willing to sacrifice um, in the way he did to lead to people feeling very fearless and much more comfortable now in doing what they've done, um, needs, that needs to be applauded. And the, the interesting evolution is, you know, hearing Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, saying Black Lives Matter. We were wrong in not listening before, and the NFL wouldn't be what it is without its black players. He has now stepped out away from the veiled side eye of, of 32 owners. See, it's usually, you know, the way the NFL tends to behave and owners behave is they react to their sponsors and their business partners. Roger Goodell and some of the things we're seeing from players and coaches like Brian Flores and Sean Payton, it is like sponsors or whatever be damned. This was not George Floyd watching him die under the knee of that police officer under the, with his neck under the knee of that police officer was not a case of black and white. That was a case of right and wrong. And I think, you know, with everybody being home because of COVID-19 and we're seeing this and we're sickened by this, it, it captivated the world's attention, unlike some of the other things that we've seen on film before, even though they were just as grisly. And, and so I, I think the fact now that people, oh, wow, Cap was telling us really does exist. Oh, wow, maybe there is some, a systemic reason why this is happening. This isn't just a one-off. This is repeated behavior. And the fact that it happened after Ahmaud Arbery, and it happened after Breonna Taylor, but on the heels of it, not months apart, um, made, made a lot of people who either had not paid attention or who had kind of um, a warped sense of consciousness say, wow, man, this is, this is really bad. We've got to, we've got to fix this. And, and, and I think that's some of the biggest change and the biggest evolution we've seen over the four years since Colin Kaepernick first didn't stand for the anthem. Yeah. You know, um, that is a, a very, very strong statement you just made about, um, the consciousness of people just being pricked to the core that day because there's so many people that just watched that and it changed the world, frankly. So what we're about on this program is dialoguing, getting people of different races to talk together, not forcibly, but to find opportunities to do that, uh, to engage in dialogue, um, to sort of try to push this, this, uh, this, this thing forward. So I'm wondering, have you seen any changes uh, out there, you know, in the sports community or in your social uh, connections or in the, the broader community that you are a part of? Have you seen anything personally that suggests that um, people are willing and able and are moving towards dialoguing to fix these issues? I really have. I mean, what's interesting is, you know, I've gotten more phone calls um 
from my colleagues, from friends, my white colleagues and, and friends saying, you know, hey, you know, when I said this, was that problematic? And I don't think it was a case of them asking me to make themselves feel better, but there's an awareness now of things they said or maybe certain behaviors that, that could step on people's toes or could be offensive. So I think the first step of some of the introspection that we're seeing for, from a lot of people, that's a step because there's a lot of people who may not feel that they've got a racist bone in their heart. And I, and I, and I believe them, but a lot of things they do or say is either out of ignorance or not having to ever confront these things before. Where I grew up in a suburb of St. Louis, it was almost all white. And if it weren't for me and the four or five other families in my neighborhood, those people could spend their entire lives without voluntarily having to see a black person. And, and that's in a lot of places around this country. Uh, and so the fact that they never have to consider some of the things that black and brown and Polynesian and native people have to go through um, is a comfort to a lot of people. And I think this is, this has pushed people to kind of look at that a little bit saying, wow, my life has been pretty freaking comfy. Um, but this is, this is getting me to understand that I've never even taken a moment to think about how other people feel. I know people have said things to for years about not getting promoted or, not being recognized, um, but then, but then here we are. But let's also not forget now. There's a whole lot of people who think their way of life, if Black Lives Matter or if Confederate statues are being torn down, who feel that their way of life is going to be uprooted, and they don't like it. They don't like it. We're we're seeing, you know, kind of more of an emboldened resistance to some of this good consciousness as well. And it's a shame you talk about this program. It's about having dialogue that's happening in some places, but there's other places where it's ne it's a waste of breath um, to get some people to open up their minds. And that's why I'm so, so glad to see, I think it's so awesome that the people leading this charge are young people. These are young people who've grown up with openly gay friends and, and gone to school with people of different races and feel comfortable around these people. And, and so I think the social media element of this and, and people just having just a natural inclination to not give a damn about things that were taboo in my era is going to lead to a lot of progress in the years to come. Yeah, you know... My my perspective, the central problem in the past and still is now to a lot of people is that uh, and it's a big problem across corporate America today was the failure to realize what you said, essentially. And that is that the foundation of racism is made up of other destructive behaviors that are fully, fully tolerated in our society. And that's, you know, harassment of people, excluding people, humiliating people. Um, failure to recognize their accomplishments, minimizing their contributions and value to society. And all of those situations, Steve, when they happen to a person who's been the victim of racism, if they happen from people who are blindly doing it or are ignorant, as you mentioned, of what they're doing, it's just the same as just the same as a racist uh, act. It's like pulling the scab off of that situation, that racist situation again. So it's very important to 
get past that. And I say that to ask you this question. Do you get the sense that the NFL has turned the page? Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so I said, I said it from outside of St. Louis. So I'm, Missouri is the show-me state. Um, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of positive chatter. There's a whole lot of encouraging statements. Um, but until until I see some some things, now I will say this in terms of player behavior, absolutely I've seen change. There's people on the front lines. I mean Matt Ryan down in Atlanta, Carson Wentz, um, Ty Matthew. I mean these people are about it, right? They. You know, we've seen the guys, the Players Coalition, Sebastian Joseph Dane, Anquan Bolden, and, and the McCourty brothers. I mean, they've been in legislative halls trying to change uh, things. They've worked with, you know, with legislators to to inform people about DAs who are in the pockets of police unions who won't prosecute bad cops. Um, so in, in that aspect, yes, the NFL has... Um, Done, uh, have put some things in place. Even at my network, we're putting different hiring and promotional practices in place for to include diversity because there just are no shot callers and decision makers of color in, in, in our in our own house. And so, from there, yes. But it, uh, the 32 owners, it is a wait and see type of you know situation. Because, as we know, these guys will dig in. They're in D.C. You have an owner who does not see that name as offensive to people. And as someone who has spent, I've gone out of my way to work with the Native American Journalists Association to do projects on Indian reservations, that name is offensive. And so we'll see. Because, you know, NFL owners tend to throw money at things and say, here you go, go do what you need to do. And, and think that that's what it's what it's about but if you have 10 players on the sideline taking a knee and you've got four sponsors threatening to pull their sponsorships is that owner going to say go right ahead we've got four people right behind you to fill your spot or is he going to kowtow to those sponsors so i am i am waiting to see before i can say things have, have turned a page in the nfl um i i think there's a lot more proof in behavior than in statements all right steve uh appreciate you taking time to talk to us about this. This is a weighty, hefty, heavy issue that's getting pushed along by a lot of people now. And uh, it's really good to see this issue being moved. It's really good to see the uptick in dialogue. The hope is that it continues. And I'm just so thrilled that I had a chance to speak to you. The person that broke that story regarding Colin Kaepernick taking the knee several years ago, had it not been for you, um, we might not be as in the know as we are today. And who knows if this story would be where it is. So thank you first for your work, your work ethic and spending some time with us today. Oh, J.D., thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the conversation. Well, that is uh, one of, if not the best interview we've had on Color so far. It was really interesting because I've wondered for a long time uh, if Colin Kaepernick had any idea that that would end his playing career effectively in the National Football League. And if he knew that, if he would do it again. And after hearing Steve's interview, I think the answer is he probably would do it again, even knowing the consequences. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think he's a very smart guy, as Steve said in that interview, and he had to know that uh, taking a stand regardless. And keep in mind, he did not know that this was going to be essentially what it is today, you know, four years later against the backdrop of George Floyd. He just knew it was something that he felt he had to do then. But I have to have to think that he know he knew then based on the way the NFL works and has worked for its entirety, um, that there were going to be some consequences. I I have to think that he knew that, Chris. Well, speaking of the NFL and consequences, on episode three of Colors, we had sports writer Christine Brennan, who's (laughs) been covering football and all kinds of sports for years, and she uh, was the beat writer for the Washington Post for the Washington football team. And remember when I asked her this question... The owner of the Redskins has been adamant that he will never, ever, ever, ever change the name Redskins to something else. Do you think that what has happened now in the wake of George Floyd will make Dan Snyder change his mind? Chris, I don't know if it will make Dan Snyder change his mind, but I do think that the um, the push will be on to change the name. And and Chris and JJ, of course, great to be with you and discussing this important topic and all of these topics now. It's sports and culture. Uh, the intersection is as wide as a superhighway in terms of uh, all of these issues, as they should be at this time in our, our nation's history. And um, yes, back in, I think it was 2013, I wrote a column saying I didn't want to use the name anymore. I would not use the name anymore. So I called them the Washington NFL team or or something like that, which is hard to do, especially being in D.C. to, to you know, there have been times I've had, to, oh, I almost said it. Yeah. And um and I'm not making light of it, but it, you do have to make fun of yourself sometimes because, as you know, of course, I covered the team uh, for the Washington Post back in the 80s when they actually won games and won Super Bowls and uh, 85, <laughs> 86, and 80, 87. And um, and I said I said the name you know thousands of times. It tripped off my tongue, of course, you know, and and you didn't think about it. And so it was 2013. It started to become an issue. I think people started to focus on it. Native Americans were discussing it, uh, were being interviewed and, and quoted, and and we started to hear their voices in a way we hadn't before. And so that's when I, that's when I did it. And uh, but now, absolutely, I think you know, I think it's inevitable. Let's say it that way. It's inevitable that the name will change. Uh, Dan Snyder, I don't think, wants it to change. Obviously, he told my colleague Eric Brady at USA Today several years ago, he said, never, all caps, use caps, never would he change the name. I think what's going to end up happening, though, is because of of where we are uh, as a society and having these important conversations, uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser has never been more popular and and more powerful. Yeah. And so she really controls this because there's she has said she wants the name to change. So if Dan Snyder wants the stadium back in the district, which I think he does, you know, he's got to go through Muriel Bowser and and there's no way she or the DC council will let him come into this into the district without um, without changing that racist name. So as soon as it came out of Christine Brennan's mouth, something told me at that moment, something must be brewing. Something is likely going to happen soon. And the fact that we have her saying it here is just the one thing that I've dreamed, dreamt of and hoped for with this show is actually being able to move the needle on this. And no, no sooner than she said it a week or two later, boom, it happened. Yeah, it's incredible. And uh, 
well, you remember, she reminded us of the fact that he said, never, 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 never change, you know, and underlined it and capitalized it and all that. Well, guess what? They say never say never. Yeah, they say never say never, and this proves it, that's for sure. You're listening to Colors. Hi, I'm Neil Augenstein. I'm in, in my 23rd year as a reporter with WTOP. I'm 61 years old, white, Jewish, grew up in the suburbs of New Haven, Connecticut. It's so weird to see childhood friends on Facebook and, and social media. In my job, I'm not supposed to share my personal opinions since my job is to try to report fairly on, on things, but I can't help but notice that some of my childhood friends have grown up to have very different thoughts on race and politics than I do. And it makes me wonder if we ever would have become friends uh, if we met now rather than back then. My name is Fonda Mwangi. I'm black. I'm from Southwest Michigan. Race in America is this omnipresent hierarchy, the status quo of the way things are. And My parents immigrated to this country from Kenya, and one of the things my mom told me when she got to this country is she noticed that her identity shifted. Before she was anything else, she was black. Before she was a daughter, before she was a mother, before she was a woman, that was now the most prominent part of her identity. And I think race in this country is exemplified in a way that it really isn't anywhere else. This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America. You know, JJ, uh, everybody is being really cautious now in the words that they use and trying not to be perceived as being um, prejudiced or racist or judgmental or whatever. Most people are, I guess. Maybe not everybody. I read something that I thought was going too far. And I'm just curious to see what you think. Realtors now, when they advertise a house for sale, refer to it as the owner's suite rather than the master bedroom. They can't say master bedroom because they think it might be a turnoff. If if I refer to the bedroom that we have in my house here in Florida where you've been as the master bedroom, is that offensive in any way? Not to me, but I can certainly see why some people living in the time that we live in might find that kind of terminology offensive. From my perspective, you know, we've talked about this before. As time passes, names change, you know, yeah. names of things change. So, you know, honestly, we're in that era now where we may be seeing a wholesale change in a lot of things. And one of the things I can think of is going to church sometimes now. There's a situation where you may hear people refer to the, instead of using the term the Holy Father, they'll say the Holy Parent. That is a part of, I think, this same situation that you're talking about, the time we live in. Well, yeah, I, boy, I, <laughs> I, I've never, well, let me just say this. You're not going to hear that in Catholic Mass. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. there are some things that the Catholic Church is not going to change on. They're changing on some things, but that's that's always going to be the Holy Father. Yeah, but the thing about the realtor, though, I think is a part of that. It's people are become hypersensitive to what other people think. But I think at the end of the day, you may have less of an issue with certain generic terms or certain names like like that, like the the master suite or whatever. But if you are culturally sensitive, if you are looking to move the needle or to move on or to improve how people view their own 
uh, station in life and themselves and their positions in life, you may be okay with that kind of change, of that, that kind of nomenclature change. That's just me thinking. So, it's time to go. This, Chris, has been another really enlightening show. This show has been really interesting, and particularly because uh, after Colin Kaepernick did what he did four years ago, uh, I was on the radio doing a talk show, and or I guess four years ago I was doing commentary, but I was uh, was on the radio disagreeing with kneeling for the uh, national anthem because as an American, um, you know, when I hear the national anthem, I stand. And I will always stand for the national anthem. That's my country. I love our country with all its faults. Um, so I, I was one of those people who was, who was you know, uh, really not very happy with Kaepernick and figured, you know, he shouldn't be doing that. He should stand. I mean, we just be respectful. If you don't want to, you don't want to say the or sing the national anthem. You don't have to, but you should stand. And I now look at it differently. And I, so my eyes have been opened by the, what's happened in the last few months. Like everybody else, I'm perfectly willing to admit that. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Kaur, and I'm white. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. On September 4th, 1957, the first day of school at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, a white mob gathered in front of the school, trying to prevent a group of black students that would later become known as the Little Rock Nine from entering. Ernest Green was on the front line. We didn't start out to be a piece of history. We were simply trying to get the best education we saw at that time. He'll join us to talk about today's newly energized civil rights, racial, and social justice movements. There's much work to be done, and there's a lot that can be done along those lines, and I'm encouraged by it. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Got a question or comment? Email us at colors at wtop.com and put the word colors in the subject line. And of course, as always, we can't go without thanking everyone who's helped us. Hillary Howard, Brennan Hazelton, Mike Chikaitis, Thomas Warren, Ellie Rowe, Jared Ruderman, Dimitri Sotis, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Beth Gibbs, Sean Anderson, Kyle Cooper, Ann Kaur, Tabitha Kaur, and all the people who sent us their reflections and audio postcards. And without a doubt, we have to thank Cosmic and Jesse Gallagher for our music. And most of all, thank you for listening. And remember, keep talking to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts.